All right, well, good morning. It's good to see everybody again. Um, for those of you who do not know me, my name's Richard. I had the distinct pleasure of visiting you guys back in, I believe it was November, um, and we were in a different location back then, so um, I like the new digs. Uh, thanks for inviting us back. My wife, Becca, and I have been looking forward to uh, coming to visit you again. Um, with that being said, please turn in your Bibles to Haggai. Uh, and if you need the reminder, like sometimes I do, that's three books to the left of Matthew. Uh, it's Haggai. Our text will be uh, chapter 2 this morning. Haggai chapter 2. And there are few things sweeter than getting to worship together with God's church, the church of our Lord Christ. And it's sweet to enjoy fellowship with you, even though we are out of town, we feel at home here. Um, So just thank you for your love and for uh, welcoming us in with hospitality. Um, If you found your way to Haggai 2, our text will be verses 20 through 23, a short text with a lot packed into it. So if you have it, then go ahead and read along with me. Haggai chapter 2, verse 20 reads, Then the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms and destroy the power of the kingdoms of the nations. And I will overthrow the chariots and the riders. And the horses and their riders will go down, every one by the sword of another. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Let's pray to begin. Father, Lord, uh, thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to worship you uh, this morning and every day. Thank you that you have bought us uh, by the redemption accomplished through your son. Uh, thank you even for those reminders in the songs that we sang to you this morning and to each other to remind us of your great grace and loving kindness. Lord, we long to worship you more rightly and we long to be conformed into the image of your perfect son. So we ask this morning, we, uh, we plead with you that you would use your word to sharpen us, to hone us, to refine us, to help us to put off all ungodliness, Lord, and to pursue your way the way that we see you to be, Lord, we want to follow in your likeness. So accomplish that through your word. We know that it will not return void. Um, As Pastor Brandon mentioned this morning, there is no power or authority in and of me as simply a herald of your authoritative words. So use your word, magnify yourself, edify these sweet brothers and sisters. And Lord, uh, we pray that you would uh, be magnified and glorified. And we pray it all in your son's name. Amen. So my question to you this morning is, what makes you want to press on? What can it be that would motivate you to be steadfast and faithful? I've no doubt that that is your aim, but what is it that 
presses you onward for our Lord. No doubt, we will endure a lot, of, a lot in life and encounter a lot that's not easy to deal with. But to be worth it, there has to be something that would motivate you to a continued perseverance. So what is that? Well, as an example, a little over a year ago, God blessed me immensely by uniting me in marriage to the most wonderful gal that he has ever made. Uh, and I'll use this as an example because uh, a lot of you here have been married. And you'll remember that with a fast approaching wedding, there's a lot of work to be done, is there not? There's planning and coordinating and premarital counseling and juggling family plans and scheduling showers and events and trying to learn to lead and honeymoon planning and all trying to stay on top of your church ministry, your local job, your uh, discipleship within the church. Bottom line is, it takes a lot of work to go into this. Although I have to give her credit, Becca did a lot of that work. Uh, but you know what, if, if you're married, I bet that that busyness stuff is not what you remember about your engagement season. I'll bet that you're more like me in this, in that all you thought about was just how wonderful it would be to spend the rest of your life with your best friend. And I bet you powered through all of that planning and extra stuff with a skip in your step, knowing that it was all leading to the big day when you would be united in covenant to your beloved. What I mean is that you endured the work because the promise which is coming is so wonderful that you consider the means by which you get there to be momentary and light, to seal Paul's terminology. Well, my friends, it is the same for us in our spiritual walk as well, not just when you're getting married. Have you ever noticed that the various trials and hardships in this life, which might seem weighty and unending, all of a sudden they're much easier to bear when you're remembering the promises which we have in Christ. When we remember that He is coming to gather us, His church, unto Himself as His bride. I know that for me, there are times when the things of life, even the things that are according to God's design, can seem burdensome to me. And that's not a problem with God's plans. That's not a problem with God's design. That is a problem of the focus of my heart. But when my eyes are on the promises of God, it seems like nothing is burdensome. Sure, things may get hard, and we've seen that, but not a burden. We have fellowship with God promised to us, face to face, forever. I mean, come what may until then, right? Well, in our passage, the Lord tells Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, to continue steadfastly in doing the work that God had commissioned him to do. And he propelled him to do that work by motivating him with the future promise of Christ's future reign. And don't worry, we'll get into more into that. But for now, suffice it to say that the same future promises that God motivated Zerubbabel with are pertinent for us today as well. And for the same purposes, faithfulness to the work that God has commissioned us to do. The future promises that God gave Zerubbabel and Judah in our text this morning actually have not all yet come to pass. So we actually still look to them as one of our primary stimulants unto faithfulness here. 
We can anticipate that God will fulfill his explicit promises. And so for our time together, we're going to consider two unshakable future promises which motivate us to faithfulness now. Again, that's two unshakable future promises which motivate us to faithfulness now. And that first promise is this. Future victory over all opposition is secure. Future victory over all opposition is secure. And we'll see this in verses 21 through 22. I'm sure that as you read that passage a moment ago with me that you picked up on a lot of that end times verbiage and references to the Messianic line, or at the very least you realize, okay, something big's going on here. A lot's being promised. But you see, God wasn't just dropping a few Easter eggs about the future reign of Christ so that uh, Zerubbabel and the gang would have a well-rounded end times eschatology, okay? He, nor was he saying that he was going to do all the work and that Judah could just sit back and, and leave it all for him to do. God was intending to motivate Judah and specifically Zerubbabel, their leader, to faithfully carry out the work that he has tasked them to do. In their case, it was rebuilding the temple. So let's take a look at what was going on up to this moment. The book of Haggai picks up in 520 BC when Judah was coming out of exile to rebuild the temple after 70 years of exile in the nation of Babylon. Long story short, uh, Judah acted corruptly and did evil in the sight of God. So he kept his promise to take them from their land and scatter them and make them slaves. But God had also promised that if they cried out with their whole heart and soul from their captivity, that he would hear them and have compassion on them. And you can find all of that in Deuteronomy 4. It's worth mentioning that in Deuteronomy 4, that God reveals the reasoning behind his compassion that he would have. He says it's because, quote, he will not forget the covenant which he swore to their fathers. So when Judah was released from their captivity to go and rebuild the temple of God in Jerusalem, a large group of Jews returned to their land to begin the hard work of rebuilding Yahweh's temple. You're familiar with the story of Ezra, who tells this particular narrative, and if you're not, it makes a great Sunday afternoon read. I would encourage you toward that. But the narrative of Ezra unfolds how the Jews set to work but encountered opposition so that, they, so that they stopped for a while. Then they got back to work only after some stiff exhortation from the Lord. And our buddy Haggai here was the mouthpiece by which that stiff exhortation came. And it spurred them back to work. So let's look again to the message that God gave Haggai to send to his people in this time. Verse 20. Then the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. So right off the bat, we've got some time markers. In our terms, this was December 18th, 520 B.C. And notice, suffice it to say that this wasn't Haggai's second message to Judah, but it was the second message in one day. Uh, It was actually his fourth and final message recorded in this very short book, and The reason that's so important to note is because this wasn't just a standalone message. He didn't just come in out of the blue and say, hey, I'm going to shake the heavens. This was kind of like a fourth and final message uh, recorded in a four-part sermon series, if you will, over the course of time. Imagine that you're sitting in a church conference and 
One speaker's referencing something that he had said in an earlier session that you weren't there for. Well, if you're not making that connection, then you don't really understand what's going on. You don't get the reference. And in the same way, our text is not in a vacuum. It's the final capstone to what he's been saying through the book of Haggai for the past few months in context. And so the first message in that sermon series, we could call it, would have been a scathing rebuke to the Jews for their misplaced priorities, or maybe in more revealing terms, uh, a rebuke for their sinful devotion to themselves while their devotion to the Lord, Yahweh, was anemic at best. Remember when I said that they were frightened by opposition and so they stopped building for a while? Well, that, that while was 16 years And they spent all of that time pouring into their own personal gain and even home projects. So that first message from Haggai, when he came on the scene, if I can paraphrase, would have felt something more like, what are you doing? You're using God's resources to decorate and fortify your houses when he sent you to rebuild his house. Consider your ways, Judah. Well, the good news and this is what's so encouraging about the book of Haggai in comparison to many of the other prophets, is they actually obeyed. They received that rebuke and the Jews repented sincerely and they started the rebuild process. And then the second message comes that Haggai preached and it was an encouragement to stay the course. The builders were discouraged, you see, because uh, this new iteration of the temple that they were building It wasn't as wonderful as the one that Solomon had built. And they felt that. And so God sent a timely message that, hey, it may not look as dazzling as Solomon's temple, but, he says, if I can paraphrase, I promise that one day I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, and in that day there will be a glory on the house of God like you have never seen. And some time passes and the third message comes in. And and the third message and our message were delivered on the same day. But that first message on the final day was to the people to consider. Okay, you've begun the rebuild. I've encouraged you in the rebuild. Now consider the days since you had been selfishly tending to yourselves instead of the mission that God had sent you on. He noted that since the day that they had stopped working on the temple until the day that they started up again, God had stifled the fruits of their labors in all that they did. He reminded them that he, as a righteous God, disciplines the disobedient and blesses obedience. And then there's this, our final message, which came as a final capstone in the four-part sermon series that the Jews needed to catapult them back into faithfulness. But notice verse 21, this message actually came to Zerubbabel directly. The people, no doubt, would have had access to this word of the Lord, but As the leader of the Jews, Zerubbabel bore a very high accountability to lead with conviction and courage. My friends, you may not be the governor of Judah or even part of ethnic Israel, but there is timeless truth in this book for you and for me as well. Consider what it would be like to be in a really tough season like Zerubbabel and Judah were in. And consider those of God's people whom you love and whom Christ loves who might be in a similar situation in a contemporary sense. Consider yourself. Consider your brother and your sister who's next to you. 
Whether you're a husband or father seeking to lead your home, or you're new in your career and you're just trying to learn your role faithfully, or if you're an elder in this church, or a mother seeking to discipline her children, maybe you're just day to day trying to pour yourself out for the sake of God's people and you're trying your best to obey Ephesians 4 in doing the work of ministry. Whatever demographic, God calls us to listen well to this, His Word. And I think we would do well uh, to pay extra attention to just how God instructs this leader to think. Right? Concerning, consider that you're serving the people of God the best way that you can. Okay? And it's hard. And there's opposition, and it's discouraging because other ministries have looked more splendorous than yours, and even though you're giving it all that you've got. And on top of all of that, you're also dealing with your own sin and selfish tendencies to coddle yourself, and all these different tendencies that we have. That's what Zerubbabel is dealing with. That's the framework of Haggai. And it wouldn't be a stretch to find yourself in that situation, would it? What is it that would get you through in that moment? Ask yourself now, imagine that context for your own life. What is the one thing that would fuel you through that? What makes you want to remain on mission and faithful? Well, here's what God said to Zerubbabel when he was in that all too familiar situation. I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. Verse 21. If you have the ESV, it says, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth. But the New American Standard is really more transparent in its translation of this verse. Uh, God wasn't revealing something that was about to happen necessarily in the, new, the near future, but something that will certainly happen in God's timing. And this is going to be the first display of God's promise to Zerubbabel of that future victory over all opposition is secure. The first specific way that God outlines his future victory is by the future shaking of all created order. This is markedly apocalyptic language. Notice the future tense here. God's not saying, hey Zerubbabel, I'm holding them off, go ahead and get back to work. But rather, he says, Zerubbabel, there will be a day when I will shake the heavens and the earth. In fact, it's the same phrase that God used to encourage uh, the builders who were discouraged um, when they were comparing the temple to Solomon's temple in uh, chapter 2, verse 7. That word, shake, it carries the sense of causing to shake because of fear. All the heavens and the earth will tremble and shake before the insurmountable might of the Lord God. And uh, that phrase, heavens and the earth, here, it's kind of an Hebrew, a Hebrew idiom referring to the whole created realm. You've heard it many times before. It's that same phrase in Genesis 1.1, when God created the heavens and the earth. So what is God going to make tremble and shake? All of it. Everything, everyone, everywhere, in heaven and on earth. God isn't just telling Zerubbabel that he will thwart those nearby enemies who are opposing this temple rebuild. He was letting him peek beyond the veil into the end game plan of God. And isn't that a comfort to us? You and I need this reminder sometimes that God isn't just the God of salvation and the God of the church. 
He's the creator of every nation, continent, planet, galaxy, and even the unseen heavens. All the heavens and the earth. And isn't it a comfort to you that when you are trudging along, to remember that you are on the side of the almighty sovereign, and he has secured his victory since before the foundation of time? Listen, God God is kind to place texts like these in our Bibles so that we would have encouragement to press on like a faithful soldier because the victory is secure. We're on the winning side. But if that wasn't enough, he goes on in verse 22 to say that he will overthrow the throne of the kingdoms. Imagine the flood of confidence that's just rising in Zerubbabel's heart as he's hearing that Yahweh is not only going to cause the opposition to tremble and shake, but he will overthrow them entirely. And let your own heart be encouraged too. I mean, don't forget, he's our God and Savior too, is he not? So look again at verse 22. I just want to point something out. That Hebrew word throne, it's, it's in the singular. Uh, and I know some translators try to smooth that out by making it plural in order to match the word kingdoms that comes after it. But in Hebrew, it's singular. Throne. Why do I mention that? Why does it matter? Well, because there is one prince of the power of the air. There is one God of this world. There is one temporary ruler who sits on the one throne. The one whom you and I often call the devil. Uh, we sang about it in uh, Mighty Fortress is Our God. Um, but there will come a day when our Lord will overthrow the throne of kingdoms. And wonderfully so, remember that overthrowing a kingdom does not just mean merely defeating, but when the king is overthrown, the defeating king now rules. Listen to Revelation eleven fifteen. It speaks of the same day. The kingdom, singular, of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever. This is essentially, this is the same happening. God keeps telling his people to look to the last days of this earth when the so-called ruler of this world will be dethroned and the righteous judge and king will reign forever. He doesn't even stop there. He moves from that high altitude, big picture of created order being toppled and thrown, overtaken. And then he dials in his promise a little bit just to give unmistakable clarity. He transitions over from the throne of the kingdoms and zooms in, we could say, on the armies themselves. And God reaffirms the effective destruction of those nations that he will overthrow and shake. Verse 22 It says, and destroy the power of the kingdoms of the nations. Not only will he overthrow the throne, but the strength, the power of the kingdoms of the nations will be destroyed. The very thing that the kingdoms, that made the kingdoms and the throne powerful will be utterly obliterated. And notice that God doesn't just say that he's more powerful than the power of the kingdoms. The Lord destroys their power, makes it nothing, desolate, utterly not. And the power of the nations which will be destroyed uh, are named here. We're not guessing as to what they are. The, The arm of the nations that makes them a force to be reckoned with is their military forces. 
God goes on to say to Zerubbabel, verse 22 again, I'm going to destroy the power of the kingdom of the nations, and hear this, I will overthrow the chariots and the riders. The way I envision this, it's kind of like a battle scene in a movie. I'm sure you've all seen something similar um, where you're watching a, a clip of a battle uh, and then it cuts from a view of the entire battle from afar and so that you get a big picture and then it zooms into a scene of a few men fighting within that battle. And it gives you a more vivid picture of what's happening on the ground floor. Maybe you've seen something similar. Well, in a similar way, I like to think of this as God's way of saying, Zerubbabel, I'm going to overthrow all of them Every last one of them. And chariots and, and riders was not just, he didn't just pick you know, some, some battle terminology. These were the epitome of strength and battle valor in those times. You can think of these as the equivalent of like tanks and ironside ships. Bottom line is this, all their best and bravest and all of their accumulated might won't stand a chance against the one who has true might, the Almighty. And it's pretty clear from the way that the rest of the verse plays out that this is going to be what we would call no sweat for God. At the end of verse 22 says, And the horses and the riders will go down, notice this, every one by the sword of another. Literally, by the sword of his brother. I mean, do you see that? I mean, this honestly feels like God is saying, You think that their destruction is something. I'll do you one better. I'll do it with both hands tied behind my back. The enemies of God won't even need to be fought. They're killing one another. Only the one true God could cause something like this to happen. The supernatural ease of the victory shows off that God's limitless ability to carry out everything that he promises And you can check out Zechariah 12 through 14 for more details on this incredible day to come. It is the same happening. Uh, We don't have time to read all of those chapters, but just to wet your whistle a little bit, let me read you an excerpt from Zechariah 12. It speaks about that same army of Armageddon. It says, Behold, I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples around. And when the siege is against Jerusalem, it will also be against Judah. It will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will be severely injured, and all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. In that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with bewilderment and his rider with madness. But I will watch over the house of Judah while I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of Judah will say in their hearts, The inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord, Yahweh of hosts, their God. I'm sure that uh, you guys can think of uh, a myriad of examples of Old Testament um, stories where God smites the enemy in battle supernaturally. Uh, I'm going to share with you one of my favorites, Second uh, Chronicles 20, it's Jehoshaphat's prayer. Where Jehoshaphat cries out to God that, hey, this enemy that's coming against me is twice our size, but we don't stand a chance. And he ends his prayer with, quote, we are powerless, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And then God responds, you will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem, Do not be afraid, 
and do not be dismayed. That same surety that the people of God had for victory in Jehoshaphat's day is the same surety that all the people of God have ultimately in him because he has promised absolute final victory. I, I, I know what you, that you understand what I just said, but really just consider it. To go back to what we said earlier, maybe you're a new parent. Maybe you're learning to nurture and raise a child and it's a little bit more difficult than you thought it would be. Maybe you're facing pushback at work because you stand with God and the scriptures on matters that the world opposes God on. And and that's ever increasing, isn't it? And maybe you're just pouring yourself out for the sake of our Lord's church and you're not seeing the fruit that maybe you thought you would. I asked the question before, but what would make you want to stay faithful? What is it that you can cling to in the midst of the battle? Friends, the key is to keep your eye on the victory. There is a day coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Is that enough for you to push you forward? Does your heart resonate with Paul when he said that all sufferings are just momentary light affliction when compared to the surpassing weight of glory that is to come? Are you as eagerly expectant to see the bridegroom, Jesus Christ, as you were to see your spouse on the day you got married? Can you say genuinely with integrity, come what may, my Lord's promise is unshakable? How much more faithful would we be in our mission and in our assigned work that God has prepared for us to do when we have our eyes fixed, not only on Him, but on His timeline? While God directs our gaze to a more eternal perspective here, actually reveals even more. And what comes next is a, a very interesting, emphatic construction. It's, it's a unique encouragement to the people of God. This, this last verse, verse 23, uh, it's so important that you'll notice God announces his name three times in the middle of one sentence. Look with me, verse 23. On that day declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. And here we have the second of the two unshakable future promises which motivate us to faithfulness now. The first promise we saw was that the future victory over all opposition is secure. And now our second promise The future rule of the eternal king is sure. The future rule of the eternal king is sure. Not only will all nations be undone in the presence of our Lord, but he promises to establish a ruler. Now, the construction of this section seems kind of choppy if you're just reading casually. Uh, Declares the Lord of hosts, declares the Lord, declares the Lord of hosts, all in one sentence. Uh, and, And in fact, You know, by English standard, wouldn't it be easier to just say, on that day, I'll make you a signet ring because I've chosen you. It's it's quicker, it's efficient, it's American. Uh, But that's not what God says, is it? God puts his name and title in there for us multiple times. What we have here is a threefold affirmation of this particular promise, thoroughly wrapped in our Lord's covenant name, Yahweh. 
This puppy is signed in triplicate. I mean, this promise ain't going nowhere. So what's this first bit about that the Lord declares here? He says, on that day, declares the Lord. On what day? Well, it's the day we just read about. When Yahweh will shake the nations and destroy the throne and overthrow armies. Now, whatever promise follows, it's important to remember that the promise will happen on that day. Why do I mention this? Because, well, that day did not come in Zerubbabel's lifetime. Comb through the history books all you want, but this simply did not happen. And that's okay, because it doesn't say Zerubbabel on this day, today. It says on that day, Zerubbabel, this will happen. Judah experienced the help from the Lord to finish building the temple. Yes, amen. But Zerubbabel never experienced the worldwide revolution of shaking of the cosmos that the Lord promised here. And so we understand this according to the prophetic language that it's presented in. And God wants Zerubbabel and all those who read this to know who is making that promise. Notice, Yahweh, the self-existent, promise-making, promise-keeping, one true God. And not only that, but he wants us to remember that he's Yahweh of hosts. He uses his specific, specific designation as the sovereign over all armies, heavenly and otherwise. That's what hosts means, the Lord of armies. He's making an unmistakably clear that he has authority over these armies which he has promised to overthrow. There's no greater name that anybody could swear by. Back to verse 23. I will take you, O Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant. Okay, so we know that Zerubbabel is the governor of Judah and that he's led the Jews back to Jerusalem for the building of the temple. But there is more to this story. Zerubbabel is actually the descendant of David in the Messianic line of promise. We know that often terms, uh, oftentimes the term, my servant, is used for the Messiah. Think of the servant songs and other examples in Isaiah and other places. And this is actually no exception. You know well that oftentimes you'll see the name David used as shorthand for the promised coming one, even long after David had actually died. And that is how the name Zerubbabel is being used here. And it's used that way a lot in the book of Zechariah as well. You can check that out maybe later today. But certainly the man, Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, he was hearing this message. But in the same way that David also heard the Davidic covenant, but understood that it would not be him that ultimately fulfills it, so it can be said for Zerubbabel. Again, Yahweh stamps his name on the declaration. He says, declares Yahweh. And I'll make you, he says, like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Okay, so we know that this promise will ultimately happen on the day when God will shake and overthrow the heaven and the earth. And we know that we're talking about the Messiah here, but the signet ring, what is that? Think think of it as a, a mark of promise. A seal of the covenant. God's signature, if you will. And here's where it starts to get a little bit mind-boggling. The, the contemporary audience would have known exactly what Haggai meant when he was delivering this word. 
The fact is that the exile was not the only punishment that God put on his people for their spiritual adultery. In Jeremiah 22, God actually removed the Davidic line from kingship. That was no minor slap on the wrist. To the doubting Hebrew mind, this would have seemed like God just revoked the Davidic covenant. I just listened to this from Jeremiah 22. As I live, declares the Lord, even though Coniah, that's Jehoiachin, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my right hand, yet I would pull you off. He then describes how he would send them into exile, and God says of uh, Kaniah or Jehoiachin, Write this man down childless, a man who will not prosper in his days, for no man of his descendants will prosper sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. What hope could there be then? I mean, the Lord has removed our only hope and then boom, taken into exile. Can you imagine the discouragement? All of your hopes just falling away. So then can you imagine the immensity of the encouragement when God says to Zerubbabel, I'm going to make you like a signet ring. So when Zerubbabel hears the promise of the signet seal, he would have known. This is a reaffirmation of the Davidic promise of the seed. It hadn't been long since his grandpa had received the original signet curse, so it would have been fresh on his mind. But we're left to ask, how, how is this possible? I mean, the transparent question is, can God revoke promises and reinstate them willy-nilly? No, absolutely not. So it's, it's really cool how God did this one, so stick with me here. Jehoiachin, who was the signet ring pulled off, essentially saying that the line would not continue through him, he was the descendant of Solomon. One of David's sons, right? And and Jehoiachin was also the father of Shealtiel, Zerubbabel's father. But the really cool thing is that Shealtiel is the one and only person in the line of Solomon who was also in the line of David's other son, Nathan. So you have these two branches shooting off from the Davidic family tree, and they eventually connect in the person Shealtiel. And so God kept his promise both to David of keeping his seed in the line, but also kept his promise to Jehoiachin that he would not have seed in the line. God always planned to sort of circumvent the line of Jehoiachin. And I know that's a lot of in-the-weeds info, but I mention this because uh, something very cool happens in the opening of our New Testament. In Matthew chapter 1, Joseph's lineage is traced back to David through his son, Solomon, in whose line was Jehoiachin and eventually Zerubbabel. So Jesus, Joseph's lawful son, was in the kingly line, legally. But in Luke 3, Jesus' lineage is traced back to David through his birth mother, Mary. Well, if you follow her line, it goes back all the way to David's other son, Nathan, not Solomon, which means not Jehoiachin. But both of them have Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, in their line. Because he was the one who would carry the signet seal of promise on. Even after God had judged Jehoiachin for leading the nation into idolatry. God kept his word to Jehoiachin. He was marked childless. In fact, remember this, Jesus was born of a virgin. 
So Jesus was never the biological son of Joseph, the son of Jehoiachin, son of Solomon. He was biologically the son of Nathan, the seed of David who was never touched by that particular curse. So then we are left to ask then, who is the ultimate ruler who will reign in the times to come when Yahweh will make all nations shake and tremble and destroy the power of the nations? Who will be seated as the new ruler over the throne of the nations? Jesus Christ of Nazareth. God the Son, the eternal King of kings. And in light of how awe-inspiring and intricate and wonderful God's covenant-keeping faithfulness is, is it any wonder that he slapped his covenant name three times on this one promise? And as amazing as all of that is, and as much as it makes our mind race with awe for our Lord and his ability to be faithful in all that he's ever promised, even things that from our standard or human standard, we, it doesn't make sense to us sometimes. He is able to, uh, to do. Why did God give these promises about the future destruction of the world and about the reaffirmation of the future reign of the Davidic Messiah? Again, it was to motivate faithfulness in the present age. Remember, this isn't a promise just so that Zerubbabel would know some facts, some theology in a book. He, wa- he wanted Zerubbabel and Judah to be faithful. Listen to all the indicatives of this passage. I am going to shake. I will overthrow. Again, I will overthrow. I will take you. I will make you. I have chosen you. God is the one who is working all things according to this plan. But he tells us that he's accomplishing his plan so that we would be faithful to pour ourselves out for his kingdom purposes now and to do the work that he has prepared for us to do. Ask yourself, okay, what, what does he not say then? Well, he doesn't say, hey, I'm going to win, so don't worry about it. Take it easy, sit back, relax, let go, let God. But what does he say? He says, I'm going to win, so press on, keep going, hold fast to your mission. Listen, this, this group of Jews needed reminding that God's promises were true and that he will rule and reign and that all opposition would be flattened. They needed reminding so that they would get back to work building the temple even in the face of much opposition and discouragement, and there would be much. Listen, I don't, I don't know everybody in this room. Maybe you are here today in the thought of Christ coming back. It's actually a frightening thought, right? Because you've not believed in, in the Messiah Jesus and turned from your sin. Friend, one day, as I said earlier, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess That he absolutely is Lord. He is who he says he is. That same Christ who is coming to rule and reign and to judge righteously, he's also offered himself a sacrifice on behalf of anyone who would trust in him alone for salvation. Listen, the scriptures are clear. Everyone who has ever lived has broken God's law. You broke God's law. I broke God's law. We all have. You and I deserve death and hell. I mean, do you really believe that? 
But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet still sinners, he sent Christ to die for us, to take on our punishment and to be in our place as a substitute. Will you bow your knee to him today and join his throng of blood-bought family? Listen, please bow the knee while grace and mercy is still on the table. All the Christians in this room would love for you to serve our Lord and to know him. And to you believers, brothers and sisters, this group of Christians gathered here this morning, myself included, need reminding that God's promises are true and that he will rule and reign and all opposition will be flattened so that we would go on and be faithful and not weary and tend toward our selfish ways. Maybe that coworker rejects the gospel again for the third time. Maybe our children are showing themselves out to be stubborn sinners. Maybe you aren't seeing the fruit of your ministry like you thought that you would. Maybe your spouse isn't on the same page with you yet on some key areas. But friends, God is going to win. Christ is building his church. Stay the course. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Eagerly await that day, brothers and sisters, when he will shake the heavens and the earth. He will reign victorious. You and I will reign together with our Lord. That's what makes us want to press on. Let's pray for the Lord's help. Father, how wonderful you are. Uh, Lord, we, we don't deserve to even know of your glory. Who are we that you are even mindful of us, Psalm 8 says. Um, and Lord, we know our smallness. We know your greatness. Um, all, all the universe you hold in your hand, and yet you care so tenderly and lovingly for each member of your church, each member of your family. Lord, we pray that um, we would cling to your word and cling to the promises that you have made so that we would be faithful to you. Lord, you haven't saved us just so that we can sit around and pass the time. You have saved us so that we would be faithful to the mission you have sent us on, so that others would know you, so that you would be magnified through the salvation of unbelievers and through the edification of your church. Lord, that we would be built up in love and helping each other to grow and to look to you so that we can worship you more rightly because you are worthy of that. Lord, we pray for faithfulness. We pray that you would incline our hearts to you. Lord, stabilize our steps. Uh, stiffen our backs that we would not grow weary or frightened. Um, we would not become afraid of the world or of circumstances, but that we would trust in you and stand on your promises and be confident in what you have said. Lord, you are trustworthy. Forgive our uh, lack of trust, our unbelief at times, uh, and strengthen us to glorify you by displaying to the watching world that you are worthy of our trust and our adoration and our praise. We love you, Lord. And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.